When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network. I am Rebecca Turkington, and I'm joined today by Dr. Susie Kim to discuss her new book, Among Women Across Worlds, North Korea and the Global Cold War, published this year by Cornell University Press. Dr. Kim is a professor of history at Rutgers University, and this new book continues many of the themes of gender and Korean history that her earlier work also explores, including articles in Cross Currents, Gender and History, the Journal of Korean Studies, and her award-winning 2013 book, Everyday Life in the North Korean Revolution. Susie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So Among Women Across Worlds follows Korean women's engagement in a broader international women's movement. And it starts just before the beginning of the Korean War in the 1940s up until 1975. And you turn to a really interesting variety of sources, from women's magazines to traditional dance, to piece together the many ways in which Korean women and their ideas from both the North and the South circulated through these broader political, cultural, and feminist networks. And as someone who also writes on many of these same networks, I really enjoyed getting to dive into this Korean case study. It brings so much depth to a lot of the questions around war, peace, and imperialism that groups like the Women's International Democratic Federation were constantly debating. Um, And that includes a lot of the big ideas that feminists still grapple with today. Um, You write about everything from the distribution of domestic labor to constructions of gender in the media, to women's rights as human rights, which really presage a lot of debates that are happening much later in the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, But before we jump into some of these larger topics, could you start by just telling us a bit about your own research background and what was it that drew you to this subject? Yes, thank you for that question and thank you for that amazing introduction to the book. I think I could have done a better job actually. I guess I would have to say, and this some of this is um, in the acknowledgments at the end of the book, um, but as I was finishing up my first book, it was published in 2013, um, and I was thinking about a topic for the next project. There was a conference um, that I was fortunate to attend in 2012 about communist feminisms, and there were scholars from all, all across, not only the United States, from all across the world, who had been working on various aspects, various local communist feminist movements um, throughout the world. And that's when I learned, I mean, I had I had come across references to the Women's International Democratic Federation, but I, I don't think I thought about um, there being potentially a large amount of resources, historical archival resources to be able to look at. But I was fortunate to meet Francisca DeHaan, who's really spearheaded the research into that international group um, at that conference, who alerted me to the fact that you know I might be able to approach um, or look at uh, North Korean women's international activism through that organization, since 
the North Koreans women, the North Korean women's group was part of that organization. So then I started looking into that um, starting roughly around then. And and as you had mentioned in my first book, there is a chapter about, about women. And so this gave me an opportunity to really expand upon that research. But in some ways, uh, another really important impetus was also the fact that around, I would say, 2014, so this is just a couple of years out after that conference, um, I was invited to be a co-organizer for a major um, public event um, that would highlight the fact that Korea still remains divided um, to this day. And given the the role of the international community in Korea's division, and the subsequent participation of the United Nations with um, in the Korean War in the early 1950s, um, the whole purpose of this public event was to try to highlight the responsibilities of the international community in in ending the division and ending the Korean War. Um, the event uh, was called the Women's Peace Walk of 2015, and it involved um, women Nobel Peace laureates. Um, as well as Gloria Steinem, a major feminist icon, of course, as you know, from the United States. And they had all joined us, um, about 30 women who committed to walking across the DMZ, the, the demilitarized zone that separates the two Koreas, as a way to um, uh, underscore the importance of peace on the peninsula. So as I was organize organizing this, this peace walk, I also realized that in 1951, during the war itself, that there had been this amazing group of international women that had gone to Korea to document, you know, war crimes and the conditions of women and children. And so it was this weird parallel universes that I was walking, you know, you know, looking at the women of 1951, but then also doing our own walk in, uh, in 2015. And I think that kind of doing both of those um, simultaneously really informed both projects for me both as an academic and scholar, but also as a, a public intellectual and a scholar activist. And um, and I and I think it enriched both journeys in many respects. And so the what drew me to the project was this kind of synergy that was created as a result of being engaged in these ways. I feel like that really comes out in the book in terms of seeing that sort of overlay of debates today um, being reflected in what's happening in the 50s. So I can absolutely see um, the roots of that. Um, I'd love to also ask you about something you mentioned briefly just now, which is sources. Um, you ask yourself a rhetorical question in the introduction of this, which is how do you write a history without adequate sources or access to the peoples and places whose history you're trying to tell? Um, and you call this cascading erasures. Um, which I, a term that I really like, that makes the women of this book really hard to trace. You know, they're women, they're communist, they're North Korean. How did all of those various layers limit the source space you were able to find? And what did you do to try to get around that? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, there was a real struggle in terms of finding the sources. As I mentioned, um, I mean, even the way that I was drawn to the project, uh, with Francisca Dehan alerting me to the fact that there are these sources um, embedded within the WIDF um, archival materials. Um, but, I mean, everybody, any work on North Korea will always kind of start with, I think, a discussion about the sources because not only 
can it be very difficult to find them? But even when you find them, there's always this debate about how to interpret them. And I think this isn't necessarily limited to North Korea per se. Of course, any source will require interpretation and contextualization. But I think with, I mean, uh, because of kind of the Cold War baggage that we continue to hold, um, there's a lot of skepticism about using kind of public and official um, publications that come out from communist countries or formerly communist countries because of the heavy state censorship. Um, and I think it, you know a healthy dose of skepticism is required no matter where the sources emanate from. Um, but for me, I mean, the cascading erasures, I'm, I'm so glad that you, you find that expression apt because actually you know, during that time, I think we were trying to, this is an anecdote, like a personal anecdote related to that, how that came about. But we were, I was renovating our bathroom at the time while I was writing this intro and um, we started to peel off like the tiles and then the, underneath the tiles there was like a wallpaper and underneath the wallpaper there was paint and I ended up because the house is about a hundred years old and we realized that all the different layers that it had gone through over that the hundred years were still there and every time a layer was peeled off there was a whole nother kind of it was a, a completely different kind of environment and sometimes you couldn't actually peel off layer by layer. So then all, you know, the entire chunk would come off together. And no matter how much you wanted to actually see the immediate layer below, it proved impossible. So for me, when I was thinking about uncovering some of the major turning points or moments in the history that I was looking at, um, it felt very si similar in the sense that sometimes you're just not able to, no matter how much you would want, and so you would have to, and I and I refer to this in a footnote, um, Saidiya Hartman's notion about critical fabulation, um, the fact that you have to add imagination as a historian to some moments that would then allow you to understand. So in other words, if you know, if from moment A to moment B, if you're not able to actually track each of those moments in between, then you have to use a certain level of imagination. Um, and that you would have to kind of do a triangulation with other sources and other events as a way to contextualize that particular moment that you don't necessarily have all the sources for. So um, the particular difficulties with, with research for North Korea, obviously, is the fact that it's difficult to actually do field work or, you know, hand on the ground research there. Um, there have been a lot of great studies done using defector or refugee testimonies, those folks from North Korea that have left the country. But of course, doing historical research that goes back to the 50s is very difficult given the general kind of um, age age group of those uh, those groups. And then, um, um, so, so the way that I then tried to work around some of these challenges with the sources was then to be able to look at and this, I guess, is part of the method of kind of triangulation, but trying to look at uh, the North Korean women's activities through the organizations, the international organizations that they were part of. And that that ended up becoming just uh, like, you know, it, it's like being in the archives and then looking at photos or um, notes or, you know, reports emerged that you had no idea had existed, that you would not be able to find even within North Korea.
Can you just, as an example of sort of using that imagination, using that triangulation, talk a little bit about Pak Chong-e, who emerges as one of the central characters in this book? Um, can just What's the brief timeline of her life and why was she such an influential figure? What were these international networks that she was part of? Yeah, I start. I actually start in the introduction with her kind of full biography, and um, I I was I was a little bit on the fence about that doing organizing the book in that way because usually the introduction is supposed to kind of encapsulate, you know, the gist of the book and and not necessarily dive like right away into the meat of the or the heart of the um, the heart of the the material. But I felt that her life really kind of congealed for me in many ways, the the trajectories of many of the North Korean women, but also like the difficulties that are involved in trying to really get a full picture of these women's lives. And so in the end, I decided to start with her biography because I thought it, you know, it was a, in some ways a very good introduction to the material. But she was uh, a woman who was born in the early 20th century, 1907, in um, Korea, Korea would be colonized by Japan in 1910. So she's basically born right at the cusp of that major event. Um, she's born in North um, North Hamgyal province, which is basically the northernmost tip of the Korean peninsula bordering um, both Russia and China. And, um, you know, there's, I mean, she comes from a peasant family um, in the peripheral areas of, of Korea. So she has no access to power, nor, and it's difficult to know when she would have actually become literate. So it's not like there's, you know, an archive full of her papers or anything like that. And um, it's it seems as if, um, and perhaps it was because of her environment that she was in, uh, because Hamgyal, the Hamgyal area of Northern Korea um, is historically known um, to have very active peasant um, organizing. And during the colonial occupation of Korea by Japan, it was also a, a site of a very active labor organization. So I think due to those influences, she also becomes a, a, an organizer, but there's almost no record of that left. Um, what records we do have left are essentially when she she's arrested by the Japanese colonial police. And so she's arrested sometime in the mid-1930s um, and it seems as if she was not indicted, so she might have been let go. But it, there's conflicting information because there's some records that seem to indicate that she might have ser served several years in prison. Um, the the international women that she goes on to meet later, um, when Korea after Korea is liberated, you know, in their memoirs of her, for example, they kind of make references to the fact that she, had, you know, she had been in prison many years, um, and so it's not clear. Um, there are no official records one way or the other. But uh, there's a long hiatus after that, whether because she was imprisoned or because she had to flee. And then it's only after Korea's liberation in 1945 that she reemerges into the limelight. And very quickly, you know, she's completely swept up into, you know, all manners of um, trying to organize a new state under communist leadership. And she becomes the chairwoman. Um, she is basically the founding chair of the Korean Democratic Women's Union, which is the mass umbrella organization organizing women in North Korea that still exists to this day. 
And she leads that organization for 20 years as chair from 1945 um, to 1965. And so, and what was really interesting for me in looking at her and then looking at her participation in the Women's International Democratic Federation was that, you know, the founding chair of the WIDF, Eugenie Cotton, also it roughly ends up coinciding with, you know, her term as chair roughly ends up coinciding with the chairship that um, Park jong has with the Korean, Korean Women's Union. So, you know, looking at these women in parallel um, and thinking about how um, oftentimes we tend to relegate um, so-called feminism purely as something it, that, that it's oftentimes relegated as a Western phenomenon, um, to me felt like a major oversight that, you know, the participation of all of these other women especially from the third world, was a very important part of the history of feminisms. Absolutely. Um, I was going to ask you that exact question. What does this add to our understanding of traditional narratives of women's history in Asia? But I think um, I'd actually like to pick up instead on this transnational aspect of it. Um, what are some of these international communities that the Korean Democratic Women's Union is part of during this time? Yeah, so, I mean... And this is actually important to think about also because there's a tendency um, to paint the WIDF, for example. I mean, one of the reasons why, if you were to ask, why is it that we're only talking about the WIDF in more recent times, in the last 10 or so years, why wasn't there more research done about this major international organization earlier before that? Um, I mean, Leela Rupp's uh, major kind of tome, I guess, for international women's history, Worlds of Women. Um, I mean, it was such an influential book, even for me. I remember, you know, as a graduate student reading that in one of my seminars. Um, but there is hardly a mention of the WIDF, even though she's covering basically the major international organizations of the 20th century. And and I suppose we could argue, I mean, part of it is kind of the lack of access to one major archive. I mean, there is no one archive because um, of the Cold War history and the fact that it, the archival traces have been kind of dispersed across many different libraries. But you could also say that oftentimes communist women are painted as, you know, kind of dupes or stooges of the communist parties, that they're not, that they don't necessarily have agendas of their own, or that if, if they did, that it, it was purely in service of the state. Um, and maybe for that reason, it wasn't considered a legitimate organization to look at. But um, I think the the number of major kind of path-breaking scholarship that has come out in the last decade or so has really proven that to be otherwise, that, you know, the women, yes, of course, they had to navigate the, the, the you know, the rules of the state um, and the rules of the Communist Party, like groups anywhere in the world, um, to, you know, more or lesser degrees, but essentially the fact that they had to navigate within the system, but still be able to advance their agenda, which is essentially to advocate on behalf of women. Um, I think that um, uh, speaks a lot. But but the reason I why I, I emphasize this is that generally because these women's organizations were considered to be kind of uh, founded top down by, you know, the kind of either the international communist movement or each state governments, um, there's a tendency to think that everything is happening top down so that, oh, the WIDF is created, 
and that all these different organizations at the state level that are led, that are pro- presumably led by the Soviet Union within the socialist bloc, that they would come afterwards. But if you look at the actual timeline of when these organizations form, the WIDF is created um, through a major world congress in December of 1945. And the Korean Democratic Women's Union is actually formed in November uh, before that World Congress takes place. And um, there are, you know, I, I make reference to some of the writings um, that have been left by women kind of reminiscing about that moment when they went to that first founding meeting of the Women's Union. And to me, there's no doubt that the impetus came from the women themselves. Of course, the North Korean um, kind of propaganda machine um especially after the 1960s, where all emphasis is placed on you know, the, the leadership, even the women's rights movement, even the women's organization, the founding of that is attributed you know, to the male leader. But I, I don't think we need to take that at face value at all. And, um, and this is one of those things, again, where I think um, that's, that kind of critical fabulation would come in very handy because you can kind of begin to see um, or begin to imagine even the the kind of um, mobilization that women would have had to um, uh, engage in in order to bring an organization like this together. And uh, I, it's also important to uh, emphasize that the Women's Union was the first mass organization among any of the other mass organizations that was formed. And I think that's also really key to think about, like, why is that? When workers and peasants presumably are at the vanguard of a communist or a socialist regime. Like, why is it that women are the first ones to organize? I think it had a lot to do with the fact that their organizing experience went all the way into the Japanese colonial occupation period, and they had a whole history of organizing efforts. Um, in addition to the WIDF, the women were also, I mean, one of the major platforms of the WIDF was, um, in addition to women's rights and children's rights, it was also um global peace. And so uh, as part of that peace movement, the WIDF was actually instrumental in the creation of the World Peace Council. And I have to say, I think there's been some, you know, article length studies done in the World Peace Council and references made in various manuscripts, but there is yet to be a full monograph or a full research on the World Peace Council. And given that it's an organization, I mean, both the WIDF and the the, the World Peace Council are organizations that exist to this day. I think it would be fantastic if somebody were to take up, you know, the research into the full history of the the World Peace Council. But that was another council where the women's union, the Korean Democratic Women's Union, was active in, and Park Jong Ae was actually um, on the council. So, what did it mean for the women's union to be part of these larger networks? How did these networks act in solidarity with Korean women, especially during the Korean War? I mean, so I well, I guess I, I I'll I'll answer that question by saying this, and this is um, this is one of the reasons why I opened the book with a um, it, it's a quote or an excerpt that I took from a memoir by Kate Froron. Um, she was a um, she was based in um, Denmark. Um, she was a anti-fascist underground activist during World War II, um, and she ends up later during the Korean War joining a delegation of international women who visit um, North Korea. 
um, the W um, the WIDF is founded in Paris in 1945. At the end of 1945, from the get go, they take a very critical stance against the the French government for its policies in Vietnam, in addition to other other parts of the third world. And the major critique that they launched was basically this. I mean, if World War II was all about, you know, the um, um, the good fight or the good war to, to, to beat fascism, then why is it that the Western powers are continuing to colonize the world? And so, um, but for taking this, what was, I think, considered at the time a fairly radical stance, the French government kicked the WIDF out of Paris and they had to relocate to um, East Berlin in 1951. And in 1951 is also the same year, you know, without being daunted by the fact that they were just kicked out of their home base, they decide to recruit women who would be willing to risk their lives to go and see what is actually happening in North Korea during the Korean War to report back to the world um, of what they've seen. And this was felt to be necessary. Not, I mean, the impetus for that was because the Korean women invited them. They appealed to the international organization because they were member member organization as a member organization. They appealed to them because, listen, you know, the Korean War is is wrecking havoc upon um, women and children, and yet none of this is being reported in the mainstream media. So you need to come and see what is happening and actually help us get the word out about what's happening here. And um, and the WIDF took up this call. And so they recruited women. Some of them were from groups that were part of the WIDF, but by no means were they all um, members of the WIDF. And they felt it actually really important that there should be a diversity of views and diversity of representation within the group um, so that they could uh, maintain a certain kind of legitimacy um, and credibility um, on their reporting. And so Kate Florad from Denmark was one of those who really insisted actually on being impartial. And so as a journalist by profession, she actually refused to be a regular member of the delegation and, and designated herself to be an observer. So, you know, in the roster, um, in the official report that the WIDF ends up producing as a result of this delegation, in the ro- list of rosters, Kate Flaron is listed as an observer and not a delegation member, although she was, I mean, you know, physically she was part of the delegation. And so her her reporting after her journey and her memoir about the whole trip is, I, I think, in some ways, one of the most sensitive accounts of what the women experienced. I mean, both the, you know, challenges of navigating these differences within the group, but what they had seen and how it impacted her um, as someone who was actually going in very much as a skeptic. Um, and it's just so moving. So, um, you know, at a time when literally, you know, the United Nations had was dominated by the United States. And so it had it had sent forces um, to fight against the communists and did not recognize North Korea or China as legitimate states at all. And so there was very little, I mean, there were a handful of journalists, I think, that were that might have been able to report on what was happening on the, the northern side, but there was almost no reporting happening about the terrible impact on civilians, especially women and children. And at that time, these women were able to go, um, and, and there are various um, 
personal accounts of the fact that they all had to write, you know, their wills in case they didn't return. And I think that was a distinct possibility, given that 1951 was literally the height of the Korean War, um, the most intense fighting happening at that time. And um, they talk about having to move around in the cover of the night because they would they would basically be strafed by U.S. air bombers otherwise. And so uh, the impact and the significance of what it meant for the Korean women to be part of this international women's group and this international women's movement, um, unfortunately, has not been highlighted enough, in my opinion. And, and I was really, I think each step of the way on working on this book, I, I just felt more and more of respect and gratitude and um I was just so moved by what these women did. And so I just I wanted to be able to do justice to 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 be able to bring some attention to the amazing work the women did. And one of the ways you do that, and I think is one of the powerful pieces of this book and maybe comes out of your work as a scholar activist, but is thinking about what peace actually means to these women. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about how this delegation to Korea by the WIDF then shaped what peace meant to the WIDF and what peace meant to the Korean Women's Union as well. Yeah, the so I make and it, and perhaps this it is a rather obvious kind of argument in light of everything that we're facing in our own time in terms of you know the inadequate um, inadequate progress we've made essentially towards social justice in our own time. But, you know, the the women make a very clear distinction between the kind of pacifism and pacifist movements um, that have its own history and, and, and a legitimate history, not, not to discount at all pacifist movements, but the women make a very clear distinction between those movements and themselves um, in this case because um, to renounce all violence when they are being exposed to violence themselves you know, whether that's colonial violence or imperial violence or other forms of structural violence, um, you know, whether because of capitalism um, kind of um, class inequalities and all of that, uh, they did not feel that that was uh, a sustainable or even a plausible strategy for them. Because it, in other words, to renounce violence when they themselves are being exposed to violence would essentially mean that they would they would just submit that they would just have to submit and for them that was not that was not the meaning of peace peace essentially meant that there was um uh justice and self-determination for themselves and so um i in the process of looking at some of the widf publications um there was a there was an article by gabriela mistral who's a who's a poet from chile um, and she she's a renowned poet because she was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature. I think it was in 1946. And she ends up um, contributing an article to the WIDF journal, uh, Women of the Whole World, where she talks about and she and as far as I know, you know, she she's using this turn of phrase in that essay and she um, where she calls peace the militancy of peace. And I thought it was a really interesting juxtaposition of kind of terminologies because militancy, we often, I mean, it, the root of the word is associated for, you know, military and the kind of struggles and fighting. Um, but then she marries that 
concept to this idea of peace, the militancy of peace, which really made me think about what that really means. And to me, you know, given given what the women were working for and the kind of language that they were using in their struggles, it, it was quite clear that they were saying, essentially, you know, the slogan that we now associate with this kind of um, perspective is no justice, no peace. So, you know, without that, that peace had to actually be struggled for um, if if it's not just kind of a passive submission, but that it's a peace that is undergirded by structural um, elimination of injustices, you know, whether that's gender inequality or class inequality or imperialism or colonialism or racism, all of these things had to be dismantled for there to be true a true justice or true um, peace with justice. Mm-hmm. And I think you make a great case in this book for the fact that the Korean War is really foundational in helping to develop that vision of peace. Um, I want to move on to a political question because this moment during the Cold War is, of course, very fraught, especially for North Korea. Um, A lot of new fault lines are emerging even within the WIDF. So you have the fault line between China and the Soviet Union. You have the fault line emerging between so-called third world countries and first world, second world countries. Where do Korean women fit in all of these? Um, and how do they navigate that as they um, participate in these global conferences and global networks through the 50s and 60s? Yeah, I mean, so um, it's not always easy to see very clearly the fault lines. Um, and I have no doubt that there were some fault lines that may have never left any records of. But, you know, one of the fault lines that we do have a very clear record of, and, you know, this is kind of common knowledge for those that are interested in this period and follow international geopolitics for the 1950s and 60s. But, you know, what is commonly referred to as the Sino-Soviet split essentially emerges from about the late 1950s and then, you know, is full blown by the time we hit the early 1960s. And I think from, you know, those that are kind of more political science oriented or, you know, kind of, um, I, I suppose in, in the, in the, in the line of kind of real politique, they would look at this as purely just a, a struggle you know, a state-to-state struggle over who's going to have hegemony over the Soviet or the socialist bloc, so to speak. So it's basically, you know, the Chinese state against the, the the Soviet state. But if you look at some of the debates that's happening, particularly in these, you know, international organizations, it's quite clear that it wasn't simply a power struggle, that it was also very much about revolutionary strategy, given that, um, I mean, you know, debates about revolutionary strategy had been happening ever since, you know, somebody thought that there should be a revolution, you know, including, I'm sure, during the French Revolution also. So the the major point, I mean, without going, there could be probably an entire book written about this alone, so I, I'm, I'm not going to go into too deeply, but I will say, essentially, it boiled down to a debate about who, um, that is, who is the revolutionary subject? Because you know, in a, in kind of classic Marxism or classic socialism, it's the proletariat, you know, the workers that are supposed to lead. And of course, that means that if you don't have a country with the sizable working class, then who's going to lead the revolution becomes a big 
um, argument. Um, of course, China being a predominantly peasant society and most of the ter- third world also being mostly predominantly a rural agrarian society, the the argument started to turn, you know, in other words, it was a critique of the kind of the stages theory of uh social revolution where you would basically have full blow capitalism and then you will you know move to socialism and then to communism and it would all be led by the working class um this was challenged by china as 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 being essentially eurocentric that there could be other ways of achieving revolution um and that the third world could perhaps come up with a more innovative way by which to achieve the revolution um it also had to do I think with how to organize internationally the different kind of socialist and communist movements and states. So, you know, is is a hierarchical relationship with kind of like your typical vanguard at the forefront. And in this case, of course, in the international community, it would have been the Soviet Union as the first, you know, as the first state with the successful communist revolution. Whether that would make more sense or whether it should be a, a less hierarchical and a bit more, you know, more autonomy given to uh, local conditions or more autonomy given to local communities so that they would be able to take account of the local conditions. So, and this kind of debate had been happening for quite some time, but, you know, China emerging as a major player in the international community, I think, finally brought this debate to a head. And um, in the women's movement, this came out... um, full-blown at the 1963 World Congress of Women um, sponsored by the WIDF. So, but what's really interesting, and this is why this kind of, you know, looking at multiple sources and triangulation, I think is really important, is that um, in the official conference proceedings published by the WIDF, you barely get a whiff that there was this conflict at all. You know, there's just almost nothing referenced to it. It's all very celebratory. But what's great was that the Chinese women basically went back to China and published their own kind of account or their perspective on what happened. And, you know, they talk about how like their the mic was taken away from them, that they couldn't speak their mind. Um, and then and then if it ended there, it would have been like, OK, so like this is, a you know, the, the women had their own kind of version of the Sino-Soviet split happening within their conference. Um, and you don't necessarily, I mean, there's references to countries or um, women's delegations that were in support of the Chinese position. And North Korea is mentioned along with several other countries, but you don't necessarily you know, have the North Korean women's um, account within the Chinese accounts. So I went back to the uh, the Rodong Shimun, which is the Workers' Daily. It's the official organ um, of the Workers' Party in North Korea. And I looked through their archives to see if there was any reference to this meeting, um, whether the women might have actually had taken a stance. And lo and behold, there was a full-on, like a page-long editorial, um, essentially published by the women's organization in North Korea, talking about their perspective and where they weigh in on this debate. And this is actually extremely rare for the Workers' Daily. I mean, as the official organ of the Workers' Party that represents the opinion of the state, essentially, uh, it's a highly kind of controlled publication environment 
where you're not going to see necessarily a diversity of views. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, the the use of official um, materials from North Korea is often sent, oftentimes criticized because it's you only see one perspective. So it's not it's not the equivalent of let's say you know, the New York Times. Although the New York Times could also be rather you know um, not so diverse. But um, so this was a rare occasion. So in other words, the women were able to publish their their perspectives on what happened despite the fact that officially the North Korean government was having to pl- having to tote this very careful line between China and the Soviet Union and not piss either of them off, given that you know they're 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 a smaller power. And while they're very effective at utilizing you know the leverage that they have, they still have to then maintain that leverage, which puts them in a rather, you know, um precarious position. So um, I was able to use then these three different sources of perspectives on what happened at the World Congress of Women to basically be able to situate, you know, the the North Korean women were clearly siding with the Chinese women and in fact also claimed that they tried to speak at this international for, you know, forum, but they were prevented from doing so. So there was a very clear split um, there. And I think this kind of Emphasis on self-determination for the third world maintains to, remains to this day very much the position of you know the official position of, of the North Korean state. Well, what a great find! It's always a historian's dream to find a big document that just says all the things that the official sources are not saying. No, but this is what's hilarious because this wasn't some hidden document. It's not actually archival at all. It's a very public, you know, it's the Rogong Shimun, it's the Workers' Daily. It's a public paper, and nobody thought to, you know, use it, I guess, in this Yeah. Way. Well, rather than secret, I guess just proof, we need to be looking at a wider diversity of sources. Um, I want to ask you a few questions about some other themes, because we've really only gotten through, like, the first half of this book. Um, <laughs> I... There's a couple chapters where you talk more about um, the Korean Democratic Women's Union's work within Korea. Um, and I thought it brought out some just really interesting themes, especially about women's labor. So I'd love to ask you about that chapter. Um, how did the Women's Union respond to women's entry into the workforce? And how did Korean women negotiate this new sort of double burden of both paid and domestic work? So for this chapter, I really... Um... It, it I, as I was working on this chapter, I came upon a whole kind of set of secondary literature and um, scholarship trying to theorize what what reproduction or what social reproduction means. And so I just I have to you know take this moment to really give a shout out to um, all of the scholars that have worked on you know what's called social reproduction theory and. Um, which helped me immensely sort of to think to think this through. Um, but traditionally, I think, um, I mean, social reproduction theory is all about trying to understand um, how how the how the value of domestic work, for example, contributes to the larger economy and yet is not adequately accounted for. And so that women, you know, because of the gender division of labor historically, that women have been largely in charge of domestic labor 
And yet, because it's not properly valorized, that then, you know, that it takes away the power because we tend to value productive labor and then not value social reproductive labor. Um, what's interesting to think about for me in, and to weigh in on this debate, which and I think is not often done, is, well, in communist countries or, you know, state socialist countries, at least in principle, you know, there was a sense that in order to achieve sex equality, that women had to be liberated from the home. And so then their domestic labor needed to be addressed. Like, who's going to do it if women are supposed to enter the workforce just as men? So then they came up with this whole idea of socializing, you know, domestic labor so that, you know, there would be childcare facilities that, you know, women and men, the fathers and mothers would be able to drop their children off at. And then there would be, you know, public canteens where essentially they would all go eat so that women are not slaving away in front of the stove at home. Um, and then even with cleaning, that there would be public laundry so that they just drop off their laundry and then they can pick it up, you know, on the way back or something like that. Um, and this was presumably a way to resolve this kind of this artificial division that had happened between productive and um, reproductive labor would essentially become just all labor because the 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 domestic labor was became socialized. Now, you know, what happens in that scenario? Because then, you know, the socialization of domestic labor is now part of the state budget. Like, um, shouldn't we then have a new theory that that kind of changes the way that we've been thinking about the division between productive and reproductive labor? But in social reproduction theory, there was very little kind of um, attempt to try to incorporate discussion about what happens under socialist economies in this way um, when they tried to do away with that division. So what I was trying to show, I think, through this chapter was, yes, so they tried to address domestic labor by socializing it, and yet there were still kind of limitations to that model. And some of these limitations have been, you know, uh, many other um, uh, scholars who have looked at, you know, socialist state, state socialist economies have made this point that because usually the socialization of domestic labor is still done by women. So like these public childcare facilities or public canteens or public laundries, instead of men going into these professions, it still was were women, even if they were being paid, there's still women that are taking on this role. So then there was a limit to how much of a, you know, desegregation of gender division of labor was happening. Um, and then um, even, I mean, despite how well you might organize domestic labor so socially or publicly, you still have some things that have to happen in the home. I mean, somebody has to clean the apartment. Um, somebody still has to take out the trash, you know, that sort of thing. And I think, you know, by all anecdotal evidence and actual kind of statistical evidence, I think it's been shown very clearly that even under state socialist societies, women end up doing the vast majority of that work. So there were clear limitations to that. But without, um, without excusing those limitations, I think what I wanted to show was the way in which the Korean women were navigating that situation and what are the kinds of demands that they were making in the face of these challenges. So, and particularly in the 50s, so soon after, you know, after all of the devastation of the war, there were very, I mean, you know, resources were hard to come by. So there were 
no, nowhere near the amount of social, um, facilities that would be required to truly socialize domestic work. And so women were constantly calling on more resources to be able to do that. But at the same time, rather than just relying on the state, there were attempts by the local women's union chapters themselves or branches themselves to try to organize um, women's labor socially. So, you know, and there was this one particular I remember very clearly because I thought, wow, like, is that true? Can that, can that be true? But one, one um, article basically claimed that by doing, by pooling their resources this way, by, by pooling their labor, and, you know, we see this kind of um, ad hoc thing. We saw this kind of ad hoc thing happening during COVID, actually, when, you know, kids couldn't be sent to school, you couldn't rely on, like, even hired childcare at your home women started to pool their resources so that like, you know, the moms of the area would be like taking charge, taking, you know, watching over the kids. And so it was essentially a very similar kind of thing, I think, happening in North Korea. And according to this one article, it saved like each woman, like five extra hours of, of time per day, which I thought, wow, like, could that be true? Imagine, I mean, because I'm always struggling for time and I'm always like running out of time. I always think, what would it mean to get five extra hours, you know, each day? I mean, that sounds like super luxurious. Um, and then there were also, there were these occasions where women were also demanding, you know, that their husbands um, pick up domestic work, that essentially if we really want to achieve sex equality, um, and I, I keep referring to sex equality rather than gender equality because that's the language that the women use at the time. I mean, gender as a concept, I think is still, um, it's still not a term necessarily that is used. Um, in, in the Korean context. But in order to achieve sex equality, that men had to do you know, their part. And then there's also really interesting kind of debates happening among the women about how to raise their kids so that the boys and the girls are essentially, you know, that girls should also be encouraged and supported to, you know, um, build things that, you know, they shouldn't just be like doing like kitchen work, but, the, you know, that they should be out there playing with things and learning about science and that, you know, boys should also um, learn to help out with domestic chores because in the end, you know, these are the kids who will go, go on to be the next generation. Again, these seem like such contemporary conversations. I feel like these are the things that, you know, we're still talking about today, especially, as you say, around COVID. Um I want to turn briefly to the last two chapters of your book, where you actually turn away from the sort of political and economic things to the cultural. And I found it really interesting that you look first at um, Choi Sung-hee, a famous Korean dancer, and then to some of Korea's most famous films and their iterations um, throughout Korean history and also in uh, China and Russia. So I'm wondering how this cultural analysis helps further our understanding of Korean women's international influence. Yeah, I, th I think there's a tendency to kind of, I mean, I, you know, by dividing the book in these parts, like the political kind of history or political mobilization history, and then kind of a more economic, you know, perspective, and then going on to the cultural sphere, I didn't mean to really suggest that they're isolated, you know, or separate, but really trying to build on each other so that we kind of see it as an integrated whole by the time we get to the last part. But also the way that the book ended up becoming kind of um, 
organized in this way had a lot to do with the kind of sources. I mean, we're returning to that discussion about sources again, but um, the kind of sources available for me to look at this particular moment. So, you know, the parts are organized into these different themes, but it also roughly then um, is chronological so that the first part on the political mobilization history is really about the 40s and 50s. And then the second part on the economic side is really from the 50s to 60s. And then the final part on the cultural sphere is really, you know, the 60s, the 70s. And by the time you get to the 60s, get to the 60s, um, I mean, so the, the, the North Korean material that I looked at most substantively and most consistently was the women's magazine, um, the organ of the Korean Democratic Women's Union that was you know, it started publication in 1946, and it basically has continued until now. And so I was able to see every issue, you know, um, different libraries have different different um, parts of this, but if you combine it all, you can get the whole thing. And the, the I mean, the, the configuration of the magazine and the journal completely changes. So in the beginning, you know, you, you have the, there's names listed of the whole editorial staff. Some of the the some of the editorial staff actually consisted of um, like illustrious, you know, women writers from the colonial period that had you know decided to move to the north. Um, uh, but by the time you get to the '60s, the editorial there's no longer references to specific personalities at all of the editorial staff. And not only that, the content of the magazine also changes so that. You know, it, it's kind of what we now associate with the official publications that come out of North Korea, which is, you know, there's kind of like this portrait of the leader, the very first article or whatever, the first first um, entry into the magazine is like the official, whatever the latest official policy pronouncement is from the state. Um, and, you know, this is when you begin to see the shift in the narrative from you know, highlighting the work of Park jong for example, as, you know, a woman organizer and chair of the group to highlighting now, you know, the the leader, the male leader um, of, of North Korea as from whom everything emanates. And it's, a, you know, to be quite honest, it would be interesting for me to think about how is it, how are North Koreans um, looking at this material actually interpreting it? Because to me, the kind of um, the kind of textual um, strategies that are being used is almost like a um, almost like a religious text, you know, where where it's not necessarily meant to be taken literal so much as it's meant to highlight a certain kind of ethos or principle, and so um, it becomes very redundant. It becomes like the same thing over and over. It becomes extremely I will admit, extremely boring to read by the time you get into the 60s. And just as a reminder, Pop, you know, Pak jong basically steps down as the chair of the Women's Union in 1965. And then um, to, to kind of flesh out and, you know, uh, put a little um, a closure to the political history within North Korea, in 1967 is when you know, what is called the monolithic ideological system. I know it, it's like a total mouthful and it sounds completely opaque, but that's kind of the system that is institutionalized within North Korea, which essentially meant 
I mean, it, it is literally what it sounds like. Monolithic ideological system. Um, um, you know, it it's, you know, Kim Il-sungism basically institutionalized as a state philosophy from that point onward, and it is completely reflected in the materials. Um, so then I had to think about, well, instead of just looking at this, what can I look at that would actually allow me to fill this third part of the book in ways that would still highlight, you know, women's contributions and not just regurgitate the state official line. And what was super interesting was to be able to then do, um, so Chesin Wu, this dancer who came of age during the Japanese occupation period, she actually, you know, um, she, she is known to have established, like anyone who knows about Korean traditional dance, they'll know the fan dance. Like it's always like kind of, it's portrayed as like classic Korean traditional culture. But what's really interesting is that it's actually not. It's That's not traditional culture. It's just been repackaged as such. And the fan dance was was created by Chesini. And the fan dance is a dance that is, you know, kind of um, trotted out as the traditional Korean dance in both North Korea and South Korea with slight differences and variations, you know, that most most lay people like us would just not be able to note, but, you know, dancers do. Um, but despite that, because she chooses to go settle in North Korea in 1946, she becomes, you know, from the South Korean perspective, she's a traitor. And so she for decades and decades, she was not. She was considered someone that you could not touch or talk about because she was considered like a non-person in South Korea. In North Korea, on the other hand, she had this illustrious career when she moved there. There was a dance institute that was installed in her own name, which is very unusual um, for North Korea in particular. And then um, she, her timeline or her her biography, roughly parallels Park Jong-hye because she sort of disappears from the public record in about mid-1960s. But until the very last moment of that, she was publishing quite prolifically on her dance philosophy. She has she has actual monographs on you know dance philosophies in her own name that was published earlier in the 1950s, um, early 60s too, I think. And then she has all these editorials and essays that she published through various other magazines within North Korea. And so what I was able to do then was look at that and compare that to the later pronouncements. So like, oh, the treatise on dance by, you know, the leader. Um, and of course, Chesengi is not cited anywhere because presumably, you know, she she is um, politically, I guess, um, she, she's, uh, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on the word. Um, Persona non grata. Yeah, she, she's censured in some way, and we don't really quite know what happened or how she dies. We're not quite sure about, but she, she's censured in some way, so she no longer appears in the North Korean publications after the 1960s. And so you can imagine for decades on end, she's just, she becomes, she disappears in both North Korea and South Korea. The way she reemerges in the South is that, you know, the military dictatorship regime in the South ends. By the late 1980s and then um in the early 90s i think is when north korea the leader kim Il-sung, begins to publish his memoirs i think he felt perhaps that he was getting old and maybe his time was limited so he wanted to leave like a frank record 
and and scholars that have worked really closely with this material, his memoirs say that, you know, unlike some of the other state official pronouncements, of course, this is considered very official also, but there's a kind of a, a personalized element to it by the sheer fact that it's a memoir. Um, and and if anyone is not going to be, you know, put under censorship, it's Kim Il-sung. You know, his writing is not necessarily going to be censored. So there's kind of honest and frank accounts in there. And he ends up referring to Chen Xinghu, which signals then to the rest of the country that, oh, like we can start talking about her again. And so there's this all these celebrations of her previous work that comes out after that. Um, but what I was able to then trace was, you know, comparing some of these publications that she put out in the 50s and 60s with the later pronouncements. It was quite clear that even though she wasn't being cited, that her her work had become foundational for what dance meant within North Korea, and that was now being repackaged as instructions coming from the leader. And so, um, you know, some of it, you know, the reason I focused on the cultural sphere, some of it had to do with um, uh, materials that were available, but some of it also just had to do with, um, oh, the material, and then, oh, I didn't really emphasize so the circulation of these kind of feminist iconography or representations in media, um, it was also interesting to trace the way that dancers like Chis and Yi were getting inspiration from other regions of the world that were part of the socialist and perhaps even beyond the socialist bloc. So one example that I provide in the book, in the chapter, is the emphasis on folk on folk aesthetics. And if you think about the 60s and like what's happening in the US, for example, with you know the rise of counterculture and all of that, um, you know, there's a tendency for us to, I think, think that particularly during the Cold War, that these like boundaries that we had between different geopolitical blocks were super firm. But I mean, I, I don't think that's I mean, if you look at the evidence, it doesn't bear out. And I can actually even just say now, it's not an area of research that I'm engaged in, but all of those people that are looking at the way that South Korean culture infiltrates into North Korea and the way that that becomes an impetus for you know whatever decision making that they're going through, if you just look at that literature, you know even then you know North and South Korea may seem like they're you know worlds apart and they're completely divided and completely unpenetrable, and yet these cultural influences um, continue to manifest. So I think we can make very similar arguments and try to see uh, based on that kind of method what other interlinkages there might be. Well, I want to end by asking you a question that draws on the way you end this book, which is thinking about some of the legacies of the Korean Democratic Women's Union. Because as we've talked about today, there are so many different layers of erasure, and yet you point out many places where their ideas and their work continues to inspire women today, both in Korea and also globally. So can you just talk a little bit about where those places are, where you see their work continuing? Well, you know, I would encourage any listeners out there who 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 are at all curious and um, intrigued by some of the things that we discussed today, today that they should pursue. Because, you know, as you mentioned early on, the book really ends um, with International Women's Year in 1975. So I didn't quite... And I needed to find a kind of a good place to end the book. So that's where I ended 
which meant that I also just focused on that period and didn't necessarily get a chance to immerse myself in the documents that come afterwards. And But I, I will say, having done the archival research, that the documents are there. And it would be, and as I mentioned, the WIDF is an organization that continues to exist today. Um, the North Korean women, you might think, oh, with the border, and I think with the COVID border closures, I'm not, I don't think those border closures have lifted as yet. But, you know, before the pandemic, um, the WIDF conferences and meetings were, were some of the ones that the North Korean women continue, continue to attend even to the recent past. So um, if anybody's interested in looking at that kind of the more recent history, you know, 80s and 90s and on, um, I would totally encourage that. Um, I will say for myself, the way that, you know, the the Korean Democratic Women's Union, by the way, they changed their name in 2016 to the Korean Socialist Women's Union. I think, you know, I mean, perhaps uh, kind of, uh, uh, what's the word? Like, I mean, maybe it was about time, given that um, in the historical record, North Korea um, had instituted a new constitution in 1972 called the Socialist, Inst Socialist Constitution because I think that's when they thought that they had arrived, um, so to speak, at socialism. But anyway, maybe it was kind of a um, overdue thing for them to do. But in any case, uh, they became, I mentioned this earlier on in the interview, but, you know, I, I was doing this kind of parallel work with the women's, um, the, the Women Cross DMZ that organized the Women's Peace Walk in 2015. And the way um, we needed partners, obviously, in the South and North, it's not like we could just unilaterally you know, decide to do this on our own. Um, in the South, you know, the, the, the YWCA was actually a major partner. It, we could not have done that walk without them. Um, and, you know, that's another global women's organization. And um, given kind of the reputation it has, you know, it's a Christian organization, a faith-based organization. So for them to be part of this project, I think, was really kind of, um, I mean, just a, an amazing um, creation of, of alliances that maybe perhaps didn't exist earlier. Um, and in the North, the partner organization was, you know, the Korean Democratic Women's Union or the Korean Socialist Women's Union. Um, so, um, and the fact that we were able to, and in fact, when we were negotiating with, so the only way you can access or have some way to communicate with the North Korean officials um, as a person who's located in the United States um, is with the DPRK, which is the official name of the country, the DPRK mission at the United Nations in New York. That's the only place. And they actually, they the officials, they have to remain, you know, in a radius of a very tiny radius around their mission because there is no diplomatic relationship, as you know, between the United States and North Korea. So, you know, when we were negotiating with the officials to try to get approval for the walk, you know, that's where we would go to meet with them. And initially, they were rather hesitant. You know, they're like, and the, the question we kept getting was, why women? Yeah. I thought, well, why not women? <laughs> Um, but the, a way to get beyond that impasse was, oh, because I had embarked on this research, I mentioned the WIDF delegation in 1951. 
And of course, most people, if I had talked about that, even, you know, well known, even well versed historians, I think most of them would have been like, what? What group? I don't know what you're talking about because it's not an area of research that's, you know, very known as yet. But then, of course, this counselor immediately was like, uh, like you could tell, you know, he, he immediately knew which group I was talking about. And he said, and he started kind of nodding. And he said, okay, then you submit the proposal and mention that history at the outset. And I'll, I'll pass it on to, you know, the government. So we did that and the approval came. So, you know, the impact of this history, yeah, it's just, I mean, I, I think I was in a recent panel and I just, I said, it's a triumph of history. And as historians, we, we rarely get to say that, <laughs> you know, because people don't often learn from mistakes. And so, you know, to say that there was a triumph of history in this moment for me, that there was a role for history to play and that there was this kind of colliding of these both worlds for me. Um, was extremely gratifying. Well, I think that is a fantastic note to end this interview on. And I just want to say thanks again, Dr. Kim, for coming on the show. It's really been a pleasure to talk about this book. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Um, once again, I'm Rebecca Trickington, and you've been listening to New Books in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network, where we've been discussing Among Women Across Worlds, North Korea in the Global Cold War by Susie Kim, a 2023 release from Cornell University Press.